This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. What do we got today, Tommy? Well, today we're going to be looking into... It's a whole bunch of stuff, basically, but we're focusing on the <laughs> Yom Kippur War. But to be able to explain the Yom Kippur War, we're going to have to do a lot of backdrops, basically a lot on the um, Arab-Israeli conflict, which has been going on for thousands of years. We're not going to be able to explain all of it in the time of our podcast, but really going to be focused on really some of the Arab-Israeli conflicts that took place in the 60s and 70s, more or less. Right? Six-Day War, Yom Kippur War, which, like you said earlier, we talked about this, the 50th anniversary coming up this week. Yep. Yeah, and that's kind of what really prompted us to do this is the Yom Kippur War. And the Yom Kippur War began on October 6, 1973, which literally the week that this the week this drops, I should say, not the week we're yeah. recording it, will be the 50th anniversary. While we started looking at let's do this Yom Kippur War, we realized that to do this we, we kinda of have the, to go. There's back so much it. more there's so much more backdrop. Because really what's going on is that on October 6, 1973, Egypt and Syria launch a coordinated attack against Israel on Yom Kippur, hoping to take back land that was lost in 1967 during the yes. Six Six Day War. And it's really the area in the Sinai Peninsula and in the Golan Heights. So that's the two places where they want to go. And it's just like the Six Day War. It's not a particularly long war. There's a ceasefire went into effect on October 25th, 1973. So the war is pretty short, but it has global reaches and a lot of aftermaths that's like really important to understand. So that's what we'll yeah. talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So the Arab-Israeli conflicts overall refer to a series of conflicts and wars that have occurred in the Middle East since the establishment of the modern state of Israel. Um, the conflicts have primarily been between Israel and various Arab states, Palestinian groups as well, within the issues stemming from historical, territorial, political disputes. So the major Arab-Israeli wars that kind of lead us to the Yom Kippur War in 73, are the first one was in 1948. And that was the Arab-Israeli War, original one. Um, it's called the War of 1948, but it really started in 47 and lasted till 49. This war occurred immediately after the declaration of the State of Israel on May 14th, 1948. And Arab states, including Egypt, which plays a big role in what we talk about today, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq opposed the establishment of Israel and basically invaded this newly declared state. Right away, yeah. Sorry, Israel knew this was going to happen. We're preparing for this, and they were getting military support from the United States. Right away, from day right one. Right away, from day one. Yep. Uh, so the war resulted in Israel victory, mainly because of the U.S. support in 48. And we have to understand 48 is only three years, not even full three years, since the end of World War II. So the United States is definitely by far the top dog, I guess, world power. Well, this, we're still the only country with the outer bomb at that exactly. point. At that point. Yep. Sorry to cut you off. Great minds. Oh, no, no, good. But, uh, but that's exactly where I was going to go, right? So the Soviet Union, although the Soviet Union supports Egypt and Syria and Jordan and Iraq, they do not yet have or possess this atomic weapon. Technically speaking, the U.S. is still boss. And therefore, by U.S. helping Israel in 48, Israel does secure a victory. But it also to at least a displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs. And it creates a, a massive refugee crisis that kind of persists to this day that follows this war. Uh, the next time that you have an Arab-Israeli conflict happens in 1956. And that is more commonly known as the Suez Canal crisis. And again, it's a conflict that's primarily between Egypt and a coalition of Israeli, France, and United Kingdom forces. Uh, I feel like we did a podcast on the Suez Canal. I'm almost positive we did. Yeah, we talked about the Suez Canal before, yeah. But basically, it's a crisis that centers on nationalization of the Suez Canal by Egypt at the time. So Israel is the one that invades Sinai Peninsula, along with France and United Kingdom. 
uh, because they want to basically counter the fact that the Egyptian president just nationalized the canal. Uh, the United States gets extremely upset about this. There's a lot of international pressure, and it basically forces Israel to withdraw from the Sinai Peninsula, and there is a ceasefire. Eleven years later is the next major one, and that is the Six Day War. Yeah, right. Well, this one is a stunning victory. Like Israel wins the Six Day War, and this is the one that really changes the status quo in this area. Eighteen sixty-seven, they beat Egypt, obviously. So they more than what their territory increased by more than four times. So Egypt loses um, 23,500 square miles. They lose yep. land in the Gaza Strip. They lose land in the Saudi Peninsula. Jordan loses the West Bank. You probably hear that in East Jerusalem. Yep. You hear about that all the time. And Syria loses the um, the Golan Heights. And what's going on here is that you have um, El Sadat. And El Sadat is the president of Egypt. And in 1970, Egypt is not in a good place, right? They're economically troubled. Uh, they couldn't really afford this endless crusade, constantly fighting Israel anymore. So he wanted to make some sort of peace. But after the Six-Day War, he's like, there's no way this, the peace is going to be favorable to Egypt, right? There's no way we have nothing on the table. So that he conceived this plan that even if fine, if we don't beat Israel, we're going to inflict such heavy damage with them that we can kind of convince them that, you know, a peace with Egypt would be the smartest thing to do. And initially, Sadat does start making some overtures to reach a peaceful settlement at first. And he actually starts by trying to go to United Nations. And the United Nations does give a resolution. Basically, what the United Nations is saying through this resolution is it wants Israel to return the territories that it had captured in a six-day war. And Sadat is kind of like, yeah, let's use the United Nations. But Israel rejects those terms. And they're, they're like, like, yeah, no, no yeah, they- we're not giving this back. And that's basically what develops into the full-scale war in 1973. So what ends up happening is on the afternoon of October 6th, uh, again, so 50 years ago, perhaps when you listen to this, Egypt and Syria attack Israel simultaneously on two different fronts. What's also important to stress is that at this point, the, the Arab armies have up-to-date Soviet weaponry. So it's, yes. it's a little bit different than what it was years prior. Now they have equal footing or somewhat equal footing militarily-wise with the technology. So that's important to understand. Because October 6, 1973, this is the holiest day in the Jewish Yeah, that's calendar. it, yeah. And what comes out years later is that the, I guess there was intelligence that kind of suggested this was going to happen. But a lot of um, Israelis are like, no, there's no way they're going to attack on this day. Out of all days, they're not going to attack on Yom Kippur. It's the holiest day. And that's one reason why they chose to attack that day. It almost gives you like that Tet Offensive of Vietnam kind of vibe. Well, yeah, it's similar. Yeah, they just didn't think it. So, no, there's no way anyone would do it this day, even if it tells you otherwise. Even the intelligence is telling you otherwise. And Iraq right. joins the war pretty quick right after that too. Iraq, Iraq forces join the war right after the attack, and they don't they join do. the first day, but they do join in shortly after. Yep, yep. The element of surprise definitely works in their advantage. Egyptian forces successfully crossed the Suez Canal with greater ease than ever expected. They're like, whoa, this is better than we thought. They suffer only a fraction of anticipated casualties. And then the Syrian forces were actually able to launch their own offensive against Israel positions. And they broke through the Golan Heights. This attack is so Blitzkrieg-esque. And it comes at such a ferocious speed that, and again, think of the day it's happening on, that Israel is literally not ready. They're like, what? And they very rapidly exhaust their reserve stocks of munitions, and it appears that Israel is going to fall. But naturally, the Israeli Prime Minister, Golda Meir, turns to the United States for aid. And he's like, like you, you, you got to help us out. Now, what needs to be kind of brought in here is that during this time as well, while Sadat is definitely using Soviets 
to arm his ar- you know, his army and to get all his supplies. Sadat did try to make some overtures to the United States as well, a little bit prior to this, to Richard Nixon. So Richard Nixon is almost like, well, I could maybe have Egypt on my side as well, which would be like a Cold War victory. So basically, Nixon's a little reluctant. He delays it for about a week, right? Exactly, to help Israel right away. But then it becomes very obvious, like, look, if Israel falls, like, there might just be no Israel. Yeah, I don't think he thought that that was going to happen. They were like, oh, there's no way Israel's going to fall. Then they're looking at the situation like, oh, it might not exist if we don't do something. So basically, he's like, all right, let's do this. So he establishes an emergency supply line to Israel. And naturally, Arab countries impose a very costly oil embargo. And oftentimes when we teach this to our students... You know, especially when you teach American history, you'd say, oh, there's an oil embargo going on and uh, the Arab countries are taking away oil and all this other stuff that's associated. But this is why this happened. Yeah, it's why I don't. Yeah, it's not always talked about like In rationale context, behind yeah, that. world history. Yeah. But that's basically what ends up happening. And for those of you guys that are not sure, like what the oil embargo is about, uh, basically it was known as the 1973 oil crisis uh, or simply the Arab oil embargo, Arab oil producing countries. That were organized under the banner of Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries. OPEC. OPEC, yeah. And they were upset about the political developments in the Middle East, particularly the Yom Kippur War. Immediate trigger for the oil embargo, literally this triggered. It was the outbreak of this war uh, in which Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack of Israel. But what really got them is the fact that the United States does step in and start to help out Israel. And in response to that, this is viewed with anger and frustration by the Arab oil producing nations. So they're like, you know what? That's what you get. You're going to back Israel. We're basically going to declare an oil embargo. And that's that's what they do. Immediate and severe impact on global energy market, right? Oil prices skyrocket, widespread shortages of oil in Western countries, long lines of gas stations, emergency rationing, economic disruptions, you name it. Geopolitical consequences of all kinds. This is bad. And this is happening because the United States steps in to help out and support Israel in the Yom Kippur War. Reinforcements are underway. American money, you're getting American military, tanks, you name it. With those reinforcements, the Israel Defense Forces are very quick to turn the tide of this war. They cross the the Suez Canal. They start responding. They shoot down several MiGs, which is a big deal. I mean, we're not going to get into all these like small battles, I guess, but um, they basically surround the Egyptian Third Army. And that's probably the big thing is they capture the entire Egyptian Third Army. And even after the ceasefire goes into effect, that Egyptian Third Army is still fighting, trying to get out. So it's kind of like when we talk about like the War of 1812, that like it didn't really, when it ended, it kept on going. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, yeah, like yeah. The Battle of, Battle of New Orleans that becomes the most famous battle. There's plenty of these battles and skirmishes and more people are dying just because on paper there's a ceasefire doesn't mean all the fighting is over. Like even on October 22nd, right? So again, this does not last long by any means, this war, right? This started October 6th, we're October 22nd. The United Nations Security Council adopts another resolution. It was Resolution 338. And it basically calls for an immediate end to the fighting. Like, okay, like- Stop fighting, yeah. Stop fighting. The UN is stepping in. They say it has to end, basically. It's not going to do anybody good. It's going to erupt into a much bigger situation. And the thing is that the UN is ignored by both sides. The Israelis have an upper hand. They're actually turned it around. So they're like, well, we're not going to give up our gains. Like we're, we're actually winning now. So while they're winning, Egypt is, as you said, they're still trying to survive here, but this isn't panning out for Egypt or Syria. So now the UN reiterates the call for a ceasefire with another resolution. There's a resolution 339. They're like, you need to stop fighting. And again, Israel, Egypt, and Syria don't stop. And then there's another resolution, 340. And it's funny, there's just so much mounting international pressure, specifically from the United States, because now you have 
you know, just in mere days, you have this oil embargo that's really starting to affect the United States. And now there's this international pressure, like you need to cease fighting. So that's basically what they wind up doing on October 26th. However, Israel doesn't really sign a formal ceasefire agreement with Egypt right until November 11th. There's still so much little fighting going on with Syria that they don't sign it with Syria until May 31st of 74. But I guess we can talk a little bit about some of the events that are going on, how this is escalating. So yep. what the UN wants to get involved is this is the closest that the US and Soviet naval forces came to like a standoff mm-hmm. during the Cold War. Because what you have going on here, the Soviet 5th Operational Fleet started with 52 ships. The United States 6th Fleet had 48 ships, including aircraft carriers. All in this, they're all like, they're right by each other. The US was actually flying aircraft, doing reconnaissance over the Soviet fleets. They were like, both fleets were preparing for war against each other until the ceasefire was put in place. And what really like sparked a lot of this was uh, something called Operation Nickelgrass. You probably heard of this one, right, Pete? Mm -hmm. It's basically Israel's like, you know, we're losing this war. So they said, all right, we have to get our nuclear arsenal because we they were given nuclear weapons by the United States, these tactical nuclear weapons, right, to stop the Arab advance so that the United States would uh, do something. Like Henry Kissinger learned of the nuclear alert on October 9th, and that's the same day that Nixon ordered the um, Operation Nickelgrass, which is like to give them what they need to fight. Yeah, so just just to kind of reiterate the Nickelgrass, so in response to Israeli urgent's request for military assistance, right, the United States initiates this Operation Nickelgrass on October 14th, 1973. So... This is like we mentioned earlier, for the beginning of this conflict, the U.S. is kind of like waiting sea. And finally, because they don't want it to escalate, you have this operation that involves an extensive airlift of military supplies, including weapons, ammunition, essential equipment from the U.S. to Israel. And the reason why it was nicknamed Nickelgrass was to signify the importance of speed and urgency. So massive in scale involved hundreds of flights of U.S. military cargo planes, star, you know, starlifter aircraft, and the aircraft provided Israel with necessary military hardware and ammunition to basically replenish its depleted stocks because when the first week, as I mentioned before, they were getting the butt kicked. But this definitely played a crucial role in stabilizing Israel's position on the battlefield. I mean, basically, it reversed those early setbacks because of how much stuff we flew to them during that time. It also signaled that the United States is, from this point forward, will have an unwavering support of Israel during uh, any form of critical moments, which is what we continue to do. Coming up on 5-Minute News... I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. So what Egypt does is they actually publicly asked the Soviet Union for direct military assistance, like soldiers and stuff like that. Yeah. And then the United States basically said, but that's not going to happen. So we send a whole bunch of troops there. We actually increased the DEFCON uh, four to three. All right. And we're kind of getting ready to like, all right, what, you know, what, what could happen? And the Soviets see this and see all these U.S. supplies and U.S. troops showing up. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't, we're not going. They actually say going, we're not going to start the third world war over Egypt and Syria. The Americans, we kind of like go over to the Egyptians and say, you need to withdraw this request formally so that the Soviets do not get involved in this. Because if they get involved, we're getting involved and then it's not going to be good for anybody. And then Egypt does formally drop their resistance because we were on the back burn, like you're talking about. They're kind of negotiating this ceasefire also. United States is trying to still trying to play both sides, I think. You know, like we're not 
totally anti-Egypt. We want to support the Israelis, but we also understand Egypt's position with this. Well, yeah, no, like the United States under, you know, Richard Nixon. Under Nixon, under Nixon. State. Yeah, yeah so under Kissinger. Nixon and, and Kissinger. I mean, this was an intense diplomatic effort because to broker that ceasefire and hostilities, Kissinger actually shuttled between Middle East capitals. Like he was flying back and forth yeah, while the war uh, was going on, while the war is going on to negotiate with the parties involved. So he's like, dude, we need to come up with a peaceful resolution to this conflict. I mean, today, at least in American textbooks, the credit is given to the U.S. and its diplomatic influence, specifically Kissinger, to secure that ceasefire in late October, which effectively ended the fighting because it's really pressuring the, the yeah. call ceasefire. Talking about that, Israel wins, but it goes really different for Egypt and for Syria. Like Egypt suffered a military defeat again at the hands of Israel, but Sadat actually gains like prestige because he, he gave him what he wanted. He gives him this opportunity to seek peace. And in 1974, you have the first of two Egyptian Israeli disarmament agreements providing for the return of portions of the Sinai to Egypt were signed. And in 78, Sadat and Israeli prime minister begin, they signed the first peace agreement between Israel and one of its Arab neighbors. So, you know, they're starting to negotiate peace. But for Syria, when Egypt kind of left the war, of course, the ceasefire, Syria's like, well, what about us? We're, we were your ally. Now you're just not fighting anymore. And they just get wiped out and they actually lose even more territory in the Golan Heights. So that's one reason why Syria and other Arab states, they expelled Egypt from the Arab League in 1979. There's so many other long-term effects of this. I mean, first of all, it demonstrated that despite the fact that Israel has these military victories prior to this event, right? Basically, they're, you almost have this, in, they're invincible. Israel's invincible. That perception is challenged during the Yom Kippur War. Yeah. And although technically they win, the first week basically makes it obvious, like without the United States, they wouldn't win. There's like this shift in power dynamics because all of a sudden, like it emphasizes the vulnerability of Israel and the importance of military preparedness. And since this point, Going forward, Israel is, has never allowed itself to be unprepared. You know what I mean? Like yeah, their whole idea now is, yeah, whenever there's a hint of something, they're going to they're going to respond with more force. This is when they're having like the constant military service, things of that nature. You also have a massive arms race in the region, right? Both Israel and Arab nations increase their military capabilities uh, through acquiring different advanced weaponry, as mentioned before, from the Soviets and the Americans, which basically brings a lot more weaponry to the Middle East, which, as we know, doesn't always pan out. Well, let's talk about the one thing that essentially winds up happening is that in the aftermath of Yom Kippur War, you have a lot of different diplomatic shifts because United States was the one to kind of broker the deal between Egypt and Israel. Egypt starts to kind of shift a little bit more towards the U.S. More West, more Western, yeah. Exactly. Instead of Soviet Union. We even have some of the um, Soviet leadership kind of getting mad with some of the Arabs. Like I saw this quote from um, Soviet leader Brezhnev, which he basically talked about. He's like, they wanted to fight fine. We gave them technology, the latest kind, even the Vietnamese didn't have. They doubled their party in tanks, aircraft. And what happened? They were beaten again. And once again, they called us and said, save us. And basically said, no, we're not going to fight for you. So a lot of the Soviet brass kind of just says, you know, you just, we gave you everything you needed. And you still couldn't do what you wanted to do. Like they kind of just turned a blind eye to them after this, as far as like militarily, like, well, just that's it. That's you it. Know? That's you it. Got what you, you got. got. You got, yeah, you're not getting any more from us. That is also when Egypt and Sadat realizes that they have to turn more towards the United States. So the one event that probably ends, I would say really ends the Yom Kippur War happens years later. And that event is the Camp David Accords, which is often taught within American 
context, you know, historical context. Yeah. But it's an extremely significant event in the Arab-Israeli conflict. It marks the first time that Egypt and Israel formally agreed to peaceful resolutions after decades of hostilities. And this happens uh, with signed on September 17th in 1978. And the key participants in the Camp David Accords were obviously Egypt. So you had uh, Sadat, you had the Israeli prime minister, and you had the United States president, who's 99 now. I think he's 100. Did he just turn 100? I thought I, I, saw, today, I thought I saw that he just turned 100. Jimmy Carter. Week. Yeah, 100 years. I'm not doing well, but he's 100 years old. You know, that's what gets me because about Jimmy Carter, like a few months ago, literally like two, two months ago, they're like, oh, he's in hospice. He's not making it. It was like three months ago. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, man. So, you know, I started talking about Jimmy in my classes. <laughs> you know, Jimmy's not going to make it, guys. And, and then like the next day, my students are like, Jimmy's still around. And I'm like, yeah, but he's in hospice. Like, it's probably not going to work. And that was three months ago, Tom. Yeah, yeah. They said he's up he's not yeah so yeah jimmy's just not ready to go yet so sadat's primary goal was to secure the return of the sinai peninsula right which had been occupied really since uh israel took it in the six-day war in 67 and what they initially tried to take back during the Yom kippur war and failed so now he's trying to sadat's trying to get that through peaceful means and he sought to normalize the diplomatic relations with israel and establish peace in exchange for sinai's return like we'll scale back with you we won't attack you but give us some of this land back the Israeli prime minister really sought peace treaty with Egypt to enhance its security and stability. So it's almost like the other side is offering what Israel actually wants. They're willing to make territorial concessions, such as withdrawing from the Sinai in exchange for peace and normalizations of relations. Kind of what happens at a Camp David Accords. So Jimmy Carter gets these two leaders into the United States, basically puts them camping and this like camping resort. Israel agrees to withdraw from the Sinai Peninsula. Um, it was a phased withdrawal, but it was a withdrawal anyway. And it was then returned to Egypt, which was completed by 82. And also there were provisions for the normalizations of the diplomatic, economic, and cultural relations with Egypt. So basically Egypt's like, we're not going to attack you. So, so yeah. that winds up getting killed. He does. Yeah, 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 yeah. People are not happy. People are very not happy about this. So these guys made this deal. Like Jimmy's very yeah. happy. The world is happy. But the countries on both sides, Israel and Egypt, a lot of them are, you know, they just fought these wars against each other. It's not for, gonna just, yeah, for years. They're yeah, not decades. just going to forget so quickly. Although that, to this day, they say the legacy of Camp David is that it serves as a model, right, for future peace negotiations. That, that is possible. If, if, if Egypt and Israel can make some sort of peace agreement that if at these two if these two countries can do it any countries can do it exactly that's, a, that's, a, that's the idea here just to kind of finish it up some of the lessons from the conflict right yanka poor war serves as a valuable lesson in conflict resolution because these guys were fighting back and forth and the UN is like, stop fighting and they're just ignoring it they couldn't help it they were just like ah we're gonna fight it, but it kind of shows the importance of diplomatic efforts like Kissinger flying back and forth between the two yeah it shows, it shows that diplomacy can work. If it can work in this war, it can hopefully work in future wars. Because this could have got out of control very quickly, and it could have been a third world war, and then we're definitely not talking about it on a podcast. No. Do you know what I mean? There would not be any podcast. <laughs> no, no, not, so, not quite. So, yeah, I mean, so that, I think that pretty much covers Yom Kippur War. There's, there's, there, there's no fun facts in Yom Kippur War. Yeah, I wouldn't say, with, I get a lot of we kind of talk about how, like, the two fleets were right opposing each other, the, the whole thing with the nuclear weapon, which I think is actually part of, if you ever read one of those... Um, who's the author some of all fears uh the J jack ryan guy yeah um, when they talk about like when and that's how the uh, terrorists in that movie or in that book get a nuclear weapon is they find one that was uh lost during Yonkerpour. the, the yonkerpore war yeah learn something new every day 
My wife watches those. The Jack Ryan ones. Jack Ryan. I remember the one with Harrison Ford. That's the one that. That's pretty much where I'm at. Yeah, I stopped at like <laughs> Patriot Games in 1990 or 91. Yeah. I think that's the one when I when Indiana watched, Jones was doing it. I haven't watched a new one. No. Oh, he did two though. Uh, Harrison Ford did two of them. Yeah, Patriot Games is some of all fears. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the ones I remember, and that's the extent. I don't know. My wife watches the ones with uh, the John Krasinski guy from The Office. Oh, he's in it. Big buff guy. I guess that's it. So this pretty much sums up the Yagapur War, guys. If you want to learn more about it, obviously you could go out and Google and you'll probably find a lot more about it, but this is a definitely a good start. So thank you so much for tuning in once more to our podcast. If you guys need to find us, you could find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Please follow us on social media. Make sure you guys click that like and subscribe button and leave us a comment if you like us. Hey, why not? So enjoy everybody and we'll see you next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.